take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Getting near the, the end of our series here, just a couple weeks left of uh, through the book of Hebrews. But we're going to come back this morning and, and we partially looked at this passage last week, but we focused in on what it has to say regarding leadership. Uh, and so we want to come back now and, and just observe and, and look at some other statements that are made in these verses. So let's begin reading Hebrews chapter 13 and we'll start at verse number 7. We're going to focus in really on 8 and 9 this morning though. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. We want to focus this morning, as I mentioned earlier, on, on verses 8 and 9 in this uh, incredible statement that is made about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then as a result of that, verse number 9, we should not be led away, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. I want us to consider first verse 8 and then verse 9. And as we contemplate verse number 8, uh, I think the, the clear uh, meaning of this passage and our, our first point is just simply this, that Jesus does not change. D Jesus does not change. And I want to observe and think about that statement uh, in, in sort of two categories. First is just sort of the broad theological implications of that statement that Jesus does not change, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then I want us to consider the specific context into which that statement is made. Now, let's begin first with the broad doctrinal implication, and we could say simply this, uh, that, that the broad doctrinal implication is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Earlier during uh, the Christmas season, we did a short series on the person of Christ, uh, and this morning we're going to get something here very quickly of sort of a booster. People are talking about this new vaccine, and, and as is so often the case, you get an initial shot, and then you come back later to get a, a booster to strengthen that vaccine, uh, and, and that's the case with many vaccines. Well, uh, that's kind of what we're doing here this morning. We have considered at a little more length uh, not too long ago, the person of Christ and, and what the Bible teaches about who Jesus was. So this morning we'll get a, a, a little booster of, of that to remind us. Uh, but the main biblical concept then that we brought out was that Jesus is truly God and truly man, both at, at the same time, truly and fully God and truly and fully man. He's not a partial mixture. He, he's not part divine and part human uh, in some kind of mixed way. 
but he has two complete natures in one person. He's not merely a superhuman or a human being with some divine qualities uh, given to him. Neither is he only divine, but, but simply appearing as a human being, maybe uh, sort of like in, in some kind of vision or, or something like that. In the Old Testament, we know that God uh, sometimes appeared in human form, but that was not the same uh, as what Jesus did. Jesus actually took to himself a, a full and complete human nature, including a physical human body. And so Jesus is truly divine, truly human. And in this passage here this morning, we get an unmistakable assertion of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. The, the writer of Hebrews here asserts that the man, the man, Jesus Christ, possesses the divine attribute of immutability. Now, why am I stressing that? Jesus Christ is the human nature, uh, is the human name for the Son of God. Uh, the Son of God did not eternally have the name Jesus. You remember when, when Jesus was born, the angels came and said, you, you will call his name Jesus. Jesus is a particular reference to his human nature. And so when it says here, it's, it's interesting then, isn't it, to say that Jesus, this, this human being, this truly human person, in every way that we are human, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ, the man, Jesus Christ, possesses the divine attribute of immutability. Now, that's a profound statement since the Bible clearly attributes immutability to God alone. All through the Bible, we see that God is the one who does not change. Human beings change. <clears throat> we go back all the way to the garden, Adam and Eve, and we see that they changed, did they not? They changed from a state of holiness to a state and a condition of sin. They rebelled against God. And that, then from that moment on, we see all kinds of changes that occur in, in, in the people that the Bible depicts. In Abraham, we see sometimes he's trusting God. And then other times he changes and he fails to trust God. Throughout the history of, of God's people, the nation of Israel, they changed habitually. They, they were fickle. They were one moment vowing to love God and to obey his commandments. And, and then in very short order, they changed and they fashioned an idol and began to worship that idol. Jesus' disciples changed. You remember Peter? How boldly he declared, did he not? That Jesus, other people will deny you, but I will never deny you. Do you hear that resolve? And then very, a very short time later, he's denying him three times. Peter changed. The other disciples changed. You and I change all the time. You and I change. At one moment, we are resolved to do something. Am I the only one? We are resolved with every fiber of our being I am going to do this, right? I am going to stick to this. I am going to be disciplined. I am going to make sure that I actually do what I'm saying this time. And, and then in very short order, uh, we are just as resolved not to do the thing that we were once resolved. There's no way I'm doing that. Right? We, we are so fickle, we change all the time. Our emotions are up and down. One day, we're on top of the world. And the very next day, we, we feel like uh, that, that the world is about to end. But in the Bible, we see that God 
does not change. James 1.17 says that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He does not change. And in fact, God makes a clear distinction in Scripture between himself as one who does not change and human beings. He says in Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man, that he should change his mind. If I was a man, God says, I would change because you human beings, you change. But I'm not a man. I am God, and therefore, I do not change. Because God does not change, we are secure. God says in Malachi 3, 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed you've changed Jacob you've changed Israel you made a vow you made a covenant to obey my law and you have not done it you have changed but I don't change and I made a covenant that you would be my people I made a covenant that I would redeem you that I would save you and because I don't change you are not consumed God does not change man changes but here this attribute that is so clearly designated to God alone and not to man is, is attributed to the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the name of the man, the human being that was born to, to Mary in the town of Bethlehem. The, the, the act of being born is undergoing a change, is it not? Changing from one state to, to another. He grew, the Bible says he grew in, in stature and in favor with God. And man, the act of growing is a process of change. You and I have changed uh, over time. So how can it be that this man who was born and who grew and who grew in favor with God and with man, how could it be said that this human being does not change, that he's the same yesterday, today, today? And forever. Well, the answer affirmed in Scripture is that Jesus is the God man. And, and when it is asserted that he is eternally the same yesterday, today, and forever, that is clearly then a reference to his divine nature. Jesus, this human being, the man, his human nature that he took on, underwent changes as all human beings did. But the Son of God, the eternal Word, who was forever with God in eternity past, he does not change. He does not change then in his divine nature. However, in the Bible, the divine nature has, has been so inseparably united to the human nature of Jesus Christ that what is true of the divine nature can rightly be attributed to his human nature. Whatever is true of God is true of the man, Jesus Christ. This is why the writer of Hebrews can take verses which in the Old Testament clearly are talking about the Lord. They're talking about Yahweh. They're talking about God. And, and the writer of Hebrews and all of the apostles in the New Testament, they can take those Old Testament references to God and they can apply them to the man, Jesus Christ, because he was the God-man. He was fully and truly divine. So whatever can be said about God can be said about Jesus we see this in, in the very book that we're in. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 10 says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. This is a quote from the Old Testament. 
talking about Yahweh. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. He takes this reference to God in the Old Testament that speaks about his eternality and his immutability and he applies it to the Son of God. He applies it to the man, Jesus Christ. He says, you are the same. The, the heavens and the earth, they're going to be rolled up like, like you'd roll up an old rug that you're getting rid of. And, and they're going to be changed like you would change a dirty garment. The heavens and the earth are going to be changed. But you do not change, Jesus. You are the same and your years will have no end. Though he is a man in, a very, in every essential aspect of humanity, the man Jesus Christ, yet at the same time, he is God in every essential aspect of his divinity, including his immutability. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. This is why the, the writer of Hebrews can say of the Son, of Jesus Christ, that he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Every divine attribute that God has, everything that makes God God, the Son, Jesus Christ, possesses. That's the broad theological uh, context, but what about the specific application of, of Jesus' immutability in this context? Uh, the question is really for us this morning, why, why does the writer of Hebrews assert the immutability of Jesus in this passage? And, and I would say this, I don't think it's just like he got to the end of the letter and he said, well, I've kind of said everything I wanted to say, maybe I'll just throw in a few theological facts here and there to wrap up the letter. I don't think that's what he's doing. Instead, this statement of the immutability of Jesus Christ is directly tied to the larger point, both of this entire book and of this specific context. When we talk about the broader context uh, of Hebrews, we, we know we've been in this book for some time. The theme of it is that we must persevere. Jesus is better, therefore we must continue to persevere in our faith. Don't abandon Christ, don't turn away from him, don't look for other means of salvation, don't rest your life on anything else. Continue to trust in the Lord until the end. And so, this is the same point that we see in this particular context. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, we could say, verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Don't, don't go off into some other teaching. Don't go look to, to add to Jesus Christ or to change from Jesus Christ or to think, okay, Jesus got me in the door, but now I've got to have something else. I've got to add to Christ. No, no, don't be led away from Jesus Christ. Stay firmly fixed upon him. And what he's telling the readers and he's telling us here this morning is that we should do that because Jesus is dependable. Listen, he doesn't change. So you don't move away from him. Don't, don't, don't leave him. Uh, we need to know, don't we, if we are building our life on someone, if we're depending on them, if we are trusting our entire existence, our entire eternity, we are trusting on this man, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. If we're doing that, we need to know absolutely with confidence this morning that he's not going to change. 
And that's what he's telling us here this morning. You can depend on him. Don't move away from him. Don't stray away from him. Don't go to something else because he will not change. This is especially true. The need to be confident in, in Jesus Christ and to be able to trust him is especially true when we're going through times of suffering, which the Hebrews are and which sometimes we go through as well. In fact, he tells them in verse number 12, he, he alludes to the Old Testament sacrifice and and if you know the, the ritual there, they would take this sacrifice outside of the camp. The idea was that the sins of the people were placed on that, uh, on that sacrifice, and then the sacrifice was taken outside of the camp, picturing the fact that their sin had been taken outside of the camp. And so it says here that Jesus, as our sacrifice, as the true sacrifice that all of those things pointed to, he was taken outside of the camp. He was rejected. He was scorned by the world and so he calls us in verse number 12 so jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured and so if you're putting your faith and your trust in jesus christ and you're called to suffer because of that faith and because of that trust in jesus christ you need to be confident then that his promises are true. You need to be confident that his word is true. You, you need to be confident that his saving work is going to forever continue to be true uh, for you. Well, why is this so important? Well, we need to understand that because Jesus does not change, that means his word does not change. You remember in Matthew, he was talking and, and predicting about the, the end of the earth and some of the suffering and persecution that would come. And he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You know, sometimes we're tempted to look at scripture and listen to what Jesus says and to read the gospels and, and to think, well, maybe times have changed. Maybe things are different now than they were at this point and, and at this time. But do you hear what Jesus said? Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. His words, because he is true, because he does not change, his words are true and his words do not change away. Heaven and earth will end before the Bible ceases to be relevant, before the Bible ceases to be true. Because Jesus does not change, his word does not change. Because Jesus does not change, his promises will not change. Isn't it good to know that when we read the promises of our Lord and Savior, we can know it's been 2,000 years, but they're still true for us this morning. They're still true for us today. Think of all of his promises, especially in light of, of sometimes the fact that we've been called to suffer. It, Jesus promised that by losing your life and following him, you would actually gain true life, eternal life. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That promise is still true today. He promises that if you come to him, he will never reject you. If you come to Christ, he will never reject you. John 6, 37, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Is that, is that true today? You say, well, I've sinned an awful lot. I know, I know I've let Christ down. I know I failed him. Maybe his promises aren't true anymore. Maybe, maybe that promise has ceased to be true in my particular circumstance. <clears throat> or 
Or maybe so much time has elapsed. Maybe, maybe he's changed his mind. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you will come to him, he will never cast you out. He will never reject you. If you suffer loss in this world because you follow Christ, he will reward you a hundredfold. Mark 10, 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospels and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. And he goes on to say an eternal life in the future. So we we can be confident. He says, hey, come and follow me outside the camp. Uh, your faith is going to lead you to suffer the rejection of this world. And, and that's increasingly becoming the case in our world, is it not? We've lived in a time of, of ease and a, t a time of comfort. But those, those things that Jesus said about suffering for him and the world hating you, those things are increasingly becoming true of us. And we need to know then and we need to be confident then that his promises are true, that whatever you give up in, in your pursuit of Christ, he will give you a hundredfold. That promise is true. Because Jesus does not change. He promises that you will face tribulation in this world, but that he has overcome the world. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And he's promised to be with us to the end of the age. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Dear friend, Jesus does not change and because Jesus does not change, every one of the promises that he gave to his people are just as true today as the day that he first spoke them. They're, they're just as true to you and to me as they were to his apostles, as they were to, to Peter and, and John. His promises are true because Jesus does not change not only are his promises true because he does not change, but, but his work, the work that he has done for us on our behalf, his saving work, his work of redemption, it does not change. Christ's sacrificial death on the cross does not change. Now, the writer of Hebrews has actually labored this point all throughout the book, book of Hebrews. Uh, in, in stark contrast to the Old Covenant, the, the Old Testament, with its rituals that had to be repeated over and over again, and its priest who died uh, and had to be replaced. Unlike all of that, in stark contrast to that, the work of Jesus is an unchanging, once for all, ever effective sacrifice. You see, in the Old Covenant, everything changed. Priests died. They had to offer sacrifices over and over again. New sin. There, there was all this. In fact, the entire Old Covenant what was changeable because it actually passed away. The old covenant has passed away. We're not under the old covenant anymore. But the new covenant and the work of redemption that Christ has done for his people does not change. It is, it is forever. The old covenant changed. Jesus does not change. Now, we understand that the old covenant changed precisely because it was not finally effective in bringing about salvation. But Jesus has actually accomplished the work of redemption and salvation, and therefore his work does not change. It stands complete forever. 
this is what the writer of Hebrews, the, the point that he was making in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. He says, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, and when he talks about perfection, he's talking about salvation. If we were able to be saved, the old covenant people, through the means of the, the old covenant, the, the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? That is talking about Jesus, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. You see the point he's making, among other things, is this. The old covenant changed because the old covenant was not effective. And the point being made is that the work of Christ was an unchangeable work because it was effective. It actually accomplished the forgiveness of your sins. It, it actually accomplished God's blessing upon you, your salvation, your redemption, your glorification, all of God's blessings have, have forever been secured through the work of Jesus Christ. In contrast to this, Jesus' ministry is effective and therefore is unchanging because he offered an effective sacrifice. He secured an unchanging redemption. That's why in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, it says, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and calves and, and goats, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So his work for us is unchanging. It says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, that this unchanging work then is a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. You can take it to the bank. It's a sure and steadfast anchor. What are you anchoring your life to? We, we anchor our lives. We, we, we put trust in all kinds of things in this world. And, and they, they all change. And, and they're liable to, to disappoint us. Uh, they're, they're liable not to pan out. And ultimately, we know because of the temporary and changing nature of this world, as we saw earlier, that heaven and earth is going to be rolled up. It's going to be changed like a garment. Whatever you're tying your hope to, whatever you're resting your soul in in this life is going to be changed. It should not be something that you anchor your life to. But this this eternal, this unchanging work that God and Christ has done on your behalf that doesn't change, and because it does not change, it should be a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. We ought to build our lives upon the work of Jesus Christ. Well, that's the importance of this first verse. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus does not change, but secondly, this morning, uh, we see that you must not change. Jesus does not change. So you must not change. And by that, I mean that we are not to move away from, from his grace, from depending upon his grace. I, I'm using that word differently than I did before, right? Uh, when, I, when I say that we must not change, I, I stated that only God is unchangeable and that because Jesus is divine, 
he possesses the attribute of immutability. So when I say that we must not change, I'm not saying here that we need to somehow take on this divine attribute of, of immutability. That's impossible. We can't do that. Instead, what I'm saying and the point that I'm making is that we must not move away from Christ. You must not change. You not, must not be led away to anything else, any other diverse or strange teaching, anything that would pull you away from salvation and Christ alone through the grace of God alone because he does not change. And all of his saving promises and his saving work are certain. You should not, therefore, be led away from him. This word, to be led away, don't be led away. It literally means to be carried away, like, like, a, like the wind would carry a, a leaf. Uh, maybe you've seen that before, just a leaf kind of blowing in the wind. And that's, that's the idea of this word here. Don't, don't be led away in, in that way. And with it, a negative connotation, it, it has the idea of someone who's been misled or, or even seduced. So it's a, a very descriptive way to illustrate people who depart from the truth, who depart from Christ and start believing some false teaching. They get carried away or led away from the truth. But the injunction given here is that since Jesus does not change, then you must not change. You must not be led away from the message of the gospel, from the message that God is saving you and redeeming you through the work of Christ, that it's an accomplished, unchanging work, and it happens entirely by God's grace. Don't get, don't get diverted from that message. You must continue to trust in God's grace alone and that's that's what he says here don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings and and then he starts to describe what that strange and diverse teaching would be in their particular context he says here it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by food not by meats literally well what's that all about what is he talking about here why would somebody think that their soul would be strengthened by food that they eat rather than by the grace of God? Well, we know that the ancient religions all had various practices regarding food. Uh, the pagans would offer sacrifices to the gods and then would eat the meat that, from the animals that they had sacrificed to these gods. And, and obviously, they, it was sort of a religious experience to them. And perhaps they thought that there, there was something empowering some kind of blessing that would come to them by eating that meat that had been sacrificed to, to idols. That's the pagans. But then, of course, even under the old covenant, God's people, there were similar sacrifices and, and uh, eating of the animals uh, of the sacrifices. And then in addition to that, you remember from your Old Testament, I'm sure all of the food regulations in the Old Testament, God gave them all kinds of, uh, of regulations about you could eat this, this kind of animal was clean, and this kind of animal was, was unclean. Now we know that Christ in the New Testament declared all foods clean, and so these Hebrews should have understood that. They, sh they should have understood that there's nothing in what we eat, there's no power in that. But, but perhaps that's what's going on in their mind because they have been 
brought up under the old covenant. They've been brought up uh, under those food regulations and, and eating these sacrifices. And they've been brought up around all of these pagans who, who look to eating sacrifice, animal sacrifice uh, to the gods as, as somehow giving them strength. And, and maybe in all of that, there was a notion that was appealing to these Christians that if they wanted to be strengthened in their faith or if they wanted to be more pleasing to God somehow, they should go back and follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament. What, what were they thinking? Perhaps there was a bit of, of superstition. Um, I'm sure some of you have heard uh, that every time I use that word superstitious, I, I, I think about a, a, an episode of a TV show I watch, and the guy says, I'm not superstitious, I'm just a little stitious. <laughs> I, I just always think that's funny, and so every time I use that word, but... But perhaps that's what's going on here. There's a sense of mysticism. You know, remember how we used to eat these animals that have been sacrificed to God under the old covenant? And man, if we would just go back and, and participate in those things. Yes, we've trusted in Christ. We've believed in him. But, but I think God wants us to participate in that. And, and maybe we would kind of be strengthened in our soul if we would go back and, and begin to participate in that. Or, or maybe it was more of a legalistic mindset. God wants us to observe the Old Testament food laws. I know that Peter said he had a dream that Jesus declared all food uh, clean. I know all of that, but maybe we need to go back and really strictly adhere to those Old Testament food laws. And if we did that, maybe we would be blessed by God. Perhaps the trials that we're going through or perhaps the, the, the difficulties that we're facing are because we have not been faithful to observe those Old Testament laws. We need to be strengthened by the foods that we eat. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, no, you're strengthened by grace alone. It, it isn't anything superstitious. There's no religious right that you can, that you can participate in that, that somehow kind of gives you a little dose of God's strength in your soul that, that mystically kind of empowers you. And, and there is no way, there, there's no good deeds that you can do, that there's no laws or regulations that you can follow that somehow merit more of God's grace for you. No, you need to be strengthened by grace and not by foods. This is a real danger for us, even here this morning. There's probably none of us here, I doubt, that, that are tempted to go back and begin observing the, the rituals of the Old Covenant. I doubt very seriously that any of you are going to go out today and be tempted to uh, participate in some pagan sacrifice and think that somehow God is going to strengthen your soul through eating meat that has been sacrificed to pagan gods. I, I doubt that very seriously. Yet there, there are many things that we might be tempted to look to in order to be strengthened. You see, it's, it's very easy for us to, uh, as Christians even, to adopt a mindset that affirms salvation by grace. Yes, it's by Christ that, that we're saved, but then begins to slowly add to Jesus Christ or add to the need for grace or begins to divert and shift our focus away from our ongoing dependence on the grace of God alone in Christ. You see, what, you know, Jared has been teaching on grace alone, the, the five solas of the Reformation, faith alone and grace alone and so forth. But, but listen, it's grace alone from start to finish. It's not as if somehow grace 
and what Jesus did, it kind of gets you into the door of salvation. And now you've got to keep yourself. Now you've got to do other things to sort of earn God's blessing or, or to grow as a Christian that is somehow dependent upon your effort or your work or regulations or a, a mystical religious ceremony that you go through. No, your salvation from start to finish, every part of it, your justification, your ongoing life of sanctification, your glorification in heaven, all of it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone from start to finish. And it's so easy, isn't it? It's easy for my own heart to begin to think about, I need God to bless me, therefore I got to do this. Man, I'm going to make sure and get up and pray more because I want God's blessing. And, and if I do that, somehow God is going to have to sort of be indebted to me. Or maybe I can kind of begin to merit some of his blessings in my life. Maybe I can be strengthened by doing some good works. It's so easy for us to begin to, to think that somehow we'll be strengthened in our position before God by the good things that we do. The, the assumption is that my obedience to some degree is the grounds for God blessing me. Do you believe that this morning? That your obedience in some way is the grounding for God blessing you. If you believe that, I, I think you're being led away from grace. The doctrine of grace is that start to finish everything that God does, every blessing that he gives you, every aid, every help, everything that he does for you is purely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We add nothing to our salvation. We merit and earn not one thing, not our original justification, and nothing from that point to the rest of our life do we earn or merit by our work and by our effort. Works can never be the grounding of God's blessing in our life. And so many of us as Christians, we think God is blessing me because I'm praying. God is blessing me because I'm doing this. I'm reading my Bible. I witness to this person and, and look at that. I got a raise at work. because God's blessing me because of the work that I do. No, no. The works that we do, the Bible teaches all of them apart from grace are as filthy rags. And that's not just true in an effort to be saved. That's, that's true all the time apart from God's grace. Do you understand this this morning? That nothing you have ever done, that, that nothing you have ever done, there's nothing that you have ever done, let me get that out clearly, that was not in some way tainted by sin. Me preparing this sermon this week, I sinned enough to send my soul to hell for all eternity. I can't stand and say, oh, I preached such a good sermon. I, I'm going to earn God's blessing. No, no, no. I failed God enough this week to send my soul to hell for all eternity. I've merited nothing. I've earned nothing from God because of my, my works. Jesus said when we've done everything that we ought to do, uh, we ought to consider ourselves still the unprofitable servant. We never get in the black in God's ledger just based on our, our good deeds. We, we never do things that's kind of put God into debt. You understand, if, if we are in the black, then God must be in the red, and that is not going to happen. Works can never be the grounding of our salvation or blessings or, or anything. Nothing you've ever done was, was purely a work that was not tainted 
by sin. This is why the Heidelberg Catechism says this. He says, the question is this, but why can our good works not be our righteousness before God? Or at least, at least a part of it. Why can it not be the, the, the grounding for our righteousness before God? Or at least a part of it. And this is the answer. Because the righteousness which can stand before God's judgment, judgment must be absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of God. Whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. That was true certainly before we were saved, but even after our salvation, even in our sanctification, in our growing, our best works are all imperfect and they're defiled with sin. But do our good works earn nothing even though God's promises to reward them in this life and the next? Don't they earn anything? God promises to bless our, our works, doesn't he? He promises to reward us. So, so certainly there looks like there's some kind of merit, and the answer is given, and I think it's a biblical answer. This reward is not earned. It is a gift of grace. Our works are like my school drawings when I was a kid. They haven't gotten any better since then, uh, but they were particularly bad when I was a child. I was always embarrassed. I hated any kind of art time. I, I mean, I couldn't draw a straight line. I hated coloring. We always, at children's church, we had coloring contests. Every single time I lost, I, there was never a time I won that. I was not good at art. And, and as it goes, though, in school, you're forced to do some of those things that you hate to do. Uh, and, and so there were pictures that I drew and different art projects that I did. And uh, I thought they had long been forgotten and, until my grandmother died. Uh, and as, as the family was going through, she had this trunk in her closet. And, and they began to go, go through things. And there were all of these little art projects that me and my brothers and sisters had done when we were in school. And she had kept them and, and she appreciated them. But, but I'm going to tell you, it was not because they were good works of art. There was nothing to commend these as something that should not be put in the trash can, right? It was purely her gracious, loving disposition to me because I was her grandchild. She loved me, and therefore she was blessed by the works that I did, the works of art, which blessed no one ever, right? And that's the way that our works are before God. Even, as I said, preaching this sermon on our best days, if all we did was share the gospel, it would still be so deficient from God's standard of perfect righteousness that we could never earn the first blessing from God. It's all of grace. He looks at it and he says, that's my child. I love my child and I'm going to reward that messed up attempt at obedience. And that's the way it was. That's the way it is. The songwriter captured this in that well-known hymn, Amazing Grace. Twas grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace, and grace alone, that will lead me home. Everything that we have from God is by His grace. So this morning, Jesus does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His grace is the same Yesterday, today, and forever, it doesn't change. You're not going to mess up, and God's, Christ is going to say, okay, I'm not giving him grace anymore. He's not going to change. His grace is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So you can anchor your soul 
in Christ. You can depend upon him. You can rest your life and your eternity in this unchangeable Savior that we have. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. We praise you that he is the exact imprint of your nature, that he does not change. Lord, we know that we change. We know that this world is undergoing changes. We know at some point it's going to be rolled up like an old rug. It's going to be changed like a garment. And yet, he is not going to change. His promises are not going to change. His blessings are not going to change. His, his work on our behalf as our Savior is not going to change. And His grace is not going to change. Lord, may we ever rest our lives on this unchangeable Savior that You've given to us. And we pray it in His name. Amen.